This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Many of you were present last uh, weekend for our retreat up at Garrison in which we held Dharma Transmission Ceremony. I'd like to speak more about that, uh, both to continue thinking through some of what transmission means and also to share with uh, those of you who weren't there some of what uh, I think was important about what we did and how we went about doing it. We hung two scrolls side by side in the Zendo, where the first part of the ceremony was going to be held, where we sat. Two scrolls, one by a teacher, Nantembo, and his student, uh, Dairyu. Nantembo's calligraphy of enormous force and immediacy of his staff. Calligraphy that embodied just this. And Dario's calligraphy was a playful drawing of monks in a long line stretching out into the distance. A line of monks on their begging grounds. A one which equally represents the lineage, one generation after another. And transmission in our practice itself always exists as a interplay or tension between these two aspects of immediacy and continuity. the verse we just chanted, we say, now we can see it, hear it, hold and maintain it. We both immediately recognize it and experience it, and what we do is hold and maintain it, be part of what continues it. The ceremonies contained words that we took from the Mumon Khan's account of the first transmission of Buddha to uh, Mahakasyapa. Words of Dogen's that he says his teacher spoke to him on transmission. 
the words of my own that I added to a ceremony that we adapt for the present day. As we noted uh, in the commentary on the Mumon Khan case, the whole image, the whole story we have of that very first transmission of the Buddha is something that was created by Chinese teachers 14, 1500 years after the fact. It does not exist in any of the original Indian uh, sutras or Pali canons. That what we call our lineage and tradition is something that we are we are now and always have been in the process of recreating as we maintain and continue it. We are, not, we are never simply in the business of being antiquarians, of maintaining in an exact form what has been handed down to us and doing it exactly the way it was done the generation before. We're always making it new. Forty years ago, when I was uh, an undergraduate in college, I encountered the phrase, make it new, in Ezra Pound, who was a poet who was preoccupied with transmission. And I've been thinking about him today as I reflected on our transmission ceremonies because what he wrote about what he thought about was how culture is transmitted over time how one culture interacts with and influences another how translation is so often the vehicle for innovation in in a new culture as it encounters how the forms and ways of writing in another that somehow bring about a revolution in the new one. The classic example is the way um, the Renaissance was the intersection of the text from classical Greece and Rome with Christianity in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. In some ways we're experiencing something analogous as the Buddhist literature of Asia comes in contact with Western psychology. So Pound said, make it new, and unfortunately uh, so many people uh, take that to mean uh, start from scratch. And it doesn't mean that at all. It means really absorb, digest, study, learn everything that went before you, and then make it yours. 
And that's really our challenge in our practice, to both be inheritors and preservers of a tradition, but someone as well who makes it new and alive as we continue it. Perhaps it's self-indulgent, but I can't uh, resist reading you a little bit uh, from Pound's Canto Number 1. This is a long poem that he's added to throughout the course of his whole life. And it's a poem about history and our relationship to history and our ancestors. And the first words of this long poem are, and then, starts right in the middle. That's where we always find ourselves, right in the middle. There's no beginning. We're in the middle to start with. And the story he opens with is taken from Homer's Odyssey. And it tells how Odysseus, after escaping from the witch Circe, traveled to the underworld in order to ask or consult the dead about what would happen to him and his men. And in the poem, the Greeks dig trenches and offer sacrifices and pour blood into the trenches for the dead to come and drink and become reanimated so that the dead will speak to us again. And this is Pound's image out of Homer of what we do as poets. We get the dead to speak to us. And we do that as Zen students. And of course, it's our own blood that we offer. So I'll read a little bit of this just for the sound and feel of it. It's also very interesting to notice that in this translation that he does, uh, rewriting a section of the Odyssey, uh, he does it in Anglo-Saxon English. Uh, He does it in a way that in in the choice of words and sounds creates yet another intersection. Uh, with this kind of uh, Norse saga, old English sound of these very short, crisp words, right? So even in the, as he brings the uh, story forward from the Greek, he's intersecting it with uh, an old English diction. And as I said, he begins right in the middle, which is where we always find ourselves. And then went down to the ship, set keel to breakers, forth on the godly sea, and we set up mast and sail on that swart ship, bore sheep aboard her, and our bodies also, heavy with weeping, 
and winds from sternward bore us onward with bellying canvas. Circe's this craft, the trim-quaffed goddess. Then we sat amidships, wind jamming the tiller. Thus with stretched sail we went over sea till day's end. And drawing sword from my hip, I dug the elsewhere pitkin, poured we libations unto each the dead, first mead and then sweet wine, water mixed with white flour. Then prayed I many a prayer to the sickly death's heads, as set in Ithaca, sterile bulls of the best for sacrifice heaping the pyre with goods, a sheep to Tiresias only, black and a bell sheep, dark blood flowed in the fosse, souls out of Erebus, cadaverous dead, of brides of youths and of the old who had borne much, souls stained with recent years. Many crowded about me with shouting, Pallor upon me, cried to my men for more beasts, slaughtered the herds, sheep slain of bronze, poured ointment, cried to the gods, to Pluto the strong. I sat to keep off the impetuous, impotent dead till I should hear Tiresias. And Pound continues this with Tiresias finally giving Odysseus the prophecy. And he, strong with blood, said then, Odysseus shall return through spiteful Neptune over dark seas, lose all companions. Lie quiet, Divas. I mean, that's Andreas Divas, 1538, out of Homer. A pound simply then just interjects his own voice, saying, what I'm doing is translating, not from the Greek, but from the, a Latin translation of the Odyssey, done in 1538. So this is part of what transmission is. We pay attention to each step along the way. It starts with the Greeks, it comes into Italy, it's translated into Latin. I'm translating it again for you, putting it in my own diction. His um, <coughs> ceremonies for summoning the dead and hearing their prophecies are perhaps only slightly uh, more exotic than the ones we did for transmission at Garrison, all both involved blood, which was uh, sort of very interesting to see all these old uh, rites be reanimated. I'll 
post this on the bulletin board downstairs if you'd like to read it over for yourselves. Um, And I can't help uh, also adding that coming right back from Garrison, I went to a uh, rock concert of Bob Dylan. And um, the opening act was a uh, now somewhat forgotten old rocker named Dion. Dion uh, was famous for a uh, hit uh, the Wanderer, and he also did a rather sappy uh, civil rights song, Abraham, Martin, and John, uh, which made him very rich. Uh, and then Dylan played. And Dylan, uh, again, this is sort of watching these two people who had uh, become very famous in their own way. 40, even uh, 50 years ago, they've been doing this. And uh, the way they performed um, couldn't have been a greater contrast. Dion uh, played as if it was still back in the 60s, and he sort of said, this is a um, my high school band set, you know. It's like hey, we were just, he was just playing his old hits and Buddy Holly and all this stuff from the 50s and 60s, and everybody just loved it. It was all these familiar tunes that everybody knew and, you know, we'd listened to originally, you know, back you know, at that time when I was in high school. And you could just see the crowd come alive, refreshed by all these old songs. And then Dylan comes on. And Dylan now was backed by this band that played this constant, hard-driving rock uh, rhythm. And uh, all his songs were sort of reduced to this same beat. And his voice was reduced to this uh, growl. So you couldn't recognize any of the uh, melodies and you couldn't understand any of the words. But it was Dylan, right? <laughs> right? And I think one song was uh, Highway 61. Uh, but it may have been the Heart Sutra in Sino-Japanese, for all I know, because, you know, it was just this growl going along, right? <laughs> so it's these two very different um, relationships to the past, right? One person is sort of playing it the way he's played it for 40 years and making everybody happy, right? Uh, but it's an exercise in nostalgia, but a really wonderful one. And the other guy is sick of being trapped in the persona of Dylan and is really making it new and doing something that's uh, new and authentic and nobody at all liked. <laughs> so in a way, this is our relationship to... Uh, Japanese Buddhism. We have to decide to what extent we are recreating this, what we're preserving, what we're making new. We're never sure who's going to like it, who the audience is. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's what I wonder, you know, are we like Dion, are we like Pound? What do we hold and maintain? What do we recreate that's new? The scroll we have uh, hanging now in the garden in the other room is by uh, great Soto master uh, Kodasawaki. And it uh, gives his admonition inconspicuously, quietly, carefully following the Buddha way. That's what we do. Yet, we must be aware that with each step, we recreate the Buddha way. We make it new, step after step. Yeah.